because we see imperfectly in mortality. Not everything is going to make sense right now. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Welcome back, everyone. This is the To Whom Shall We Go podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sorensen. So real quick before I introduce our guest, I kind of wanted to just apologize to everyone. Um, I haven't released an episode for about a month. That's just because I've been in, I've been working for the, the church's FSY program, and I've been pretty busy with that. But I'm hoping that starting after this episode is published, that we'll, we'll start having an episode published every Sunday. That's kind of the goal. So um, that's, that's what I'll be trying to do. But thanks for your patience with me. Um, so today we're, we're pleased to have Paul Reeve joining us. And a little bit about Paul is he's a professor at the University of Utah. And he, he wrote a book called Religion of a Different Color, Race and the Mormon Struggle for Whiteness. And I've talked to a lot of different people and everyone I've talked to has been very clear that that's probably the best book we have right now on the church's history of race. So um, I definitely recommend looking into that more. Um, yeah, Paul, is there anything else you'd want our audience to know about you before we, we dive into this discussion? No, that sounds good. Okay. Um, so today's discussion, we're going to be discussing the, the church's history re- relating to race. Um, and I wanted to start by sharing a quote that I heard um, I heard Marcus Martins give this quote at a, at a conference to CES employees, and I think it's I think it can be kind of a helpful pre- preface to our conversation. Um, so the quote just says, "True history shows that many good guys had their mistakes, sometimes abominable, and many who were called bad guys sometimes had noble motivations. That's normal in a fallen celestial world." So we wanted to kind of just share that and just kind of explain as we go into this, just the importance of avoiding black and white thinking. Um, we're going to go over a lot of information. And I think sometimes in the church, we can have this very black and white thinking where if the church is true, then everything the prophets have said has to be completely true. Every policy has to be inspired. And as you learn more about this ban, the priesthood ban in particular, you may, that belief that the ban may have been inspired, you might not have it anymore. I know a lots of faithful Latter-day Saint scholars, and I'm not really a scholar, but myself included, that we believe strongly in the church, but we don't believe that the ban was inspired. You can come to your own conclusion on that, but just know that just because there's some some crazy things that happened in our past, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the restoration didn't happen. So I want to kind of just give a little bit of a preface with that. Um, so yeah, we'll be going over the priesthood ban and the history of race. So I guess just to get us started, Paul, can you give us a little bit of a background with the context of the times um, in America when like the restoration was first happening? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's really important to remember that the Church of, well, you know, originally called the Church of Christ, um, 
and then by 1838, uh, renamed the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Uh, it's born into a fraught uh, American racial culture. Um, I think uh, as a historian, it would be really remarkable if uh, that fraught American racial culture didn't have some sort of impact on uh, the faith that grows out of that culture and uh, vice versa. So it's important to remember um, there are questions animating American uh, politics, American society around race. Um, uh, remember, uh, <clears throat> African-Americans are enslaved in the South. Uh, Northern states have outlawed slavery or enacted forms of gradual emancipation in some states, uh, trying to extract themselves from this um, peculiar institution as it comes to be called, because it becomes peculiar to the South. Uh, so that's one question animating American uh, politics. And then uh, the, the, the year that uh, the church is founded, Andrew Jackson, who's president of the United States, signs into law the Indian Removal Act, uh, which uh, requires Native peoples uh, who are east of the Mississippi to be rounded up and placed west of the Mississippi designed to solve what's called the quote unquote Indian problem in American politics. So uh, those are two just um, really brief examples of, you know, a fraught racial culture that that the Latter-day Saint faith is born into. I think that's really significant. Thanks for sharing that. I remember also just hearing, I don't know if this was you or Russell Stevenson, I was listening to a talk and they were just kind of saying as well that and today we have this very positive view of abolitionists per se, but for a lot of people at that time period, the way we might view terrorists today might've been how they viewed abolitionists. Yeah, and it's, it's important to remember, I mean, um, you know, there's this whole, whole spectrum uh, operating in the, in the 19th century um, in terms of uh, uh, labor, as well as in terms of a racial, um, you know, a whole racial kind of understanding that, that we should try to um, unpack. But uh, you have the radical, um, radical, so let me, let me kind of back up there, but um, immediate abolitionists were sort of seen as uh, radical in terms of their point of view. So 1830 is also the year that um, uh, Garrison uh, starts his, his society and he's advocating for immediate abolition of slavery. Uh, the vast majority of Americans, if they are against slavery, uh, argue for gradual emancipation. The fear is you're going to emancipate uh, 4 million enslaved people uh, what are they going to do? Uh, they will uh, then be jobless. Uh, they'll move north. They'll intermarry amongst us. Uh, they'll um, steal our white wives and daughters. All of those are kind of fears animating uh, what is seen as a racial problem in the U.S. So slavery at the time is seen as a twofold problem. Uh, it's an unfree problem. So some who argue against slavery say, uh, you know, we should get rid of slavery because it violates America's founding principles. Uh, but those very same people uh, also then say, once you free the slaves, we have a racial problem. They don't see black people as equal to them. 
Uh, so to solve the racial problem, they found, uh, you know, the American Colonization Society, which is designed to send uh, formerly enslaved people to Africa to colonize them there. So they remove the racial problem from the U.S. Uh, so, you know, you can be uh, anti-slavery. It doesn't mean that you believe that black people are equal to you. And so you have a, a small and what is seen as a radical group of immediate abolitionists who say that black people are equal and that slavery should be eliminated immediately. And that group will touch off a variety of anti-abolitionist um, riots uh, uh, in the US in the 1830s. And Ohio is home to more of those than any state in the nation. Um, and Ohio, remember, becomes one of the uh, competing headquarters for, for the LDS faith. And so um, those kind of, uh, you know, ideas and the anti-abolitionist backlash directly have an influence on how the history of the church unfolds. Thank you for that background. And there's one more thing that I also thought was significant is I was watching your, your address that you gave at FAIR a few years ago. And one of the things that you mentioned is that in a lot of people's view, um, the intermixing of races would lead to the downfall of democracy. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's another part of this fraud American racial culture. Um, so you have, for example, Senator Calhoun on the floor of the United States Senate in 1848 says, uh, democracy is the government of a white race. He believed that people who were not white were racially, biologically incapable of participating in democracy. Uh, the illogic in his argument, what he said was, well, just look around the globe. The only uh, people practicing democracy are white. Therefore, people who are not white are racially incapable of democracy. Uh, so if we mix races, it will darken the white race and make it unfit for democracy. So what's at stake is not merely race mixing, but what's at stake in his mind is this Republican experiment, this, this experiment in, in uh, you know, self-rule. Uh, and uh, that is also a part of this fraud American racial context. Uh, most states in the nation leading up to the Civil War have laws uh, on the books against uh, black, white race mixing. Uh, you can't interracially marry in most states in, in the nation uh, leading up to the Civil War. Um, so uh, especially for Latter-day Saints, that's going to come to influence uh, how they're perceived from the outside because outsiders uh, think, at least in the first couple of decades, that Latter-day Saints are too welcoming of the very people that the rest of white society uh, believe should be excluded and even enslaved. And because they're perceived as being too welcoming, uh, fears of race mixing are projected onto the Latter-day Saints. Thank and you for sharing know. that background. I think that's very significant. And that just kind of helps us to have just a greater understanding of just the underlying assumptions that the people were dealing from that. Yeah. Um, and as you mentioned, I think it's significant that in the early days of the church, um, for that current day's standard, we were really open-minded in terms of race. Um, the Book of Mormon talks about that all are like unto God. Um, we had people like 
Elijah Abel, Q Walker Lewis, Green Flake, these different black men that were ordained to the priesthood even during that time period. So I think that's very significant. Um, do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really helpful to conceive of, uh, you know, the history of race in, in the LDS faith uh, unfolding in three phases. Uh, and the first phase is, is open priesthood, open temples, universal gospel message. It's meant for everyone. Uh, and then we have, uh, in fits and starts, the implementation of a racial priesthood and temple, racial priesthood and temple restrictions across the course of the 19th century, I think uh, firmly solidified in place by the beginning of the 20th century. And then uh, the third phase is ushered in by President Kimball in 1978, where his revelation returns the church to its universal roots. I don't see it, uh, you know, taking the church in any sort of a radical new direction, but in fact, simply restoring what was lost uh, in in the face a search for whiteness for 130 years. So um, I think those three phases help us to make sense of what happens. And it's important to note that in that first phase, then uh, there is uh, open attitudes about uh, priesthood and who the gospel message is for, temple admission. Uh, and, you know, I can share evidence to support that. Um, Joseph Smith claims uh, five different revelations that say that the gospel message is to be preached unto every creature. Uh, we like at Latter-day Saints like to quote unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Every creature is even less ambiguous. It leaves no one out. And evidence uh, suggests that early missionaries, uh, you know, took that seriously. Uh, they were preaching to and baptizing uh, free black people as well as enslaved black people. Uh, the first black person that we can document baptized into the faith is 1830 in Kirtland, a former slave known as Peter. Uh, um, uh, Elijah Abel follows in 1832 in Ohio. He's ordained to the priesthood uh, in January of 1836 and elder. Uh, Joseph Smith puts his signature on his ministerial certificate a couple of months later by March of 1836. He receives his Washington anointing rituals in the Kirtland Temple in 1836. And by December of 1836 is actually ordained a member of the third quorum of the 70, uh, which was a missionary quorum in the 19th century, not a general authority quorum as is reconfigured by uh, you know, the late 20th century. But uh, then he will go on three missions for the faith. Uh, as a black priesthood holder. So it's important to understand that, um, you know, these, these um, policies are open. <clears throat> there is this open racial vision. The gospel is meant for everyone. And uh, early Latter-day Saint leaders took that notion seriously. And, <clears throat> you know, if you're studying uh, the Come Follow Me curriculum for this year, just pay attention. Pay attention to um, any revelation that is uh, suggests that there's so, supposed to be a limit. Um, I've heard sometimes Latter-day Saints try to justify the previous uh, racial and temple restrictions by saying, well, it's parallel to Jews first and then Gentiles, uh, you know, which Jesus um, established in his day. So white people first and then black people. Uh, there is no evidence to support that. 1831, Joseph Smith says, God gave me a revelation. This gospel must be preached unto every creature. That leaves no one out. 
there was no uh, stages of this, uh, who this restoration was supposed to be shared with. And it was preached openly uh, to people of all races. Uh, there was there was a, a mission sent to Jamaica, for heaven's sakes, in 1853. Wow. Uh, so, and to, to Africa uh, in 1853. So, um, you know, they took they took those notions of the universal gospel message seriously. Yeah, I think that's really significant. So we, we have Joseph Smith, who was very, he seemed very open-minded with this issue. Can you give us a little bit of the background and maybe kind of the evolution of Brigham Young's views? And then we can kind of lead that up to the 1852 when the ban was, was implemented. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it's important that we have evidence that Brigham Young is also on record as favorably aware of a black priesthood holder uh, and uh, on record with an open racial vision as late as March 1847. Uh, there's a, um, a fascinating interview that takes place at winter quarters in March of 1847 before Brigham Young leads uh, the first group of saints into the Salt Lake Valley. There's a Black Latter-day Saint named William McCary who comes to Brigham Young and, and the rest of the leadership who's at winter quarters at the time and complains about the way that he's being treated uh, by his fellow white Latter-day Saints. He's basically um, saying that he's experiencing racism. And I think it's true, uh, he, he probably was. Um, the interview unfolds with Brigham Young, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to reassure William McCary, look, um, we're all of one blood, we're all of the same broader human family. He paraphrases Acts 1726, uh, which uh, was used by religious thinkers of the day to reject the polygenesis theory that was in circulation by um, you know, some of the scientific community who said, look, these races are so different, so distinct, they must be different species even. Uh, there must be two you know, different creations. Uh, they arise out of different creations. Um, and religious thinkers reject that because they say it's a violation of the biblical creation narrative. Um, and Brigham Young is on record, you know, rejecting that in, in uh, March of 1847. And when McCary persists, um, Brigham Young says, look, uh, we don't care about the color. And McCary says, well, I don't have any leadership positions in this faith. And Brigham Young says, well, we don't even discriminate in distributing priesthood authority. We have one of the best elders, an African in Lowell, a barber. That's a direct quote from Brigham Young in March of 1847. And he's talking about uh, Q. Walker Lewis. Everything that he says um, fits perfectly Q. Walker, what we know about Q. Walker Lewis. He is uh, an ordained elder to the priesthood, ordained by William Smith, uh, Joseph Smith's younger brother, who was an apostle at the time. And he's, uh, he lives in the low Massachusetts branch of the church, and he is a barber by trade. And Brigham Young had been to the Low Massachusetts branch, and so it's really likely that he had met Q. Walker Lewis. And so it's really important to understand then uh, that he has no problem with the black priesthood holder because he actually cites him favorably as an example that the church doesn't discriminate in distributing priesthood authority in March of 1847, trying to um, assuage uh, William McCary. Uh, but then we have uh, Brigham Young sort of heading in a, in a different direction. That's sort of the, uh, you know, the high point of this racial openness. And then 
uh, you know, we see by the end of 1847, uh, Brigham Young starting to express concern over race mixing. Um, and I think the transition really is uh, concern over race mixing. Uh, at the same time that Brigham Young leads saints into the Salt Lake Valley, uh, he has sent a man by the name of William Appleby uh, to survey the conditions of the various branches of the church on the East Coast and sort of get an assessment, um, you know, how many are going to be ready to immigrate once the new Zion has been established, um, see what kind of spiritual condition the churches are in in these various branches. And William Appleby uh, travels from branch to branch by his own account, travels over 2000 miles that summer. Uh, but he goes to the Low Massachusetts branch and he we, he meets William, uh, excuse me, Q. Walker Lewis. And we know that he's disturbed by this because he sits down and writes Brigham Young a letter in June of 1847. So Brigham Young's almost to the Salt Lake Valley when uh, William Appleby is in the Low Massachusetts branch and he's writing Brigham Young a letter. And he's got two questions for Brigham Young. Hey, I met a black priesthood holder. Do we really allow this in this church? Do we allow black, black priesthood holders? So he's been a member for seven years um, and he, he's concerned because we know from William Appleby's journal that he's a racist. Um, and he's also met uh, Hugh Walker Lewis's son, Enoch. Enoch is also a baptized Latter-day Saint and is married to Mary Matilda Webster, who is also a baptized Latter-day Saint. But what is most concerning to William Appleby is that she's white and they have a child together. And he's in fact disgusted by this. So he asked Brigham Young two questions in his letter. Do we allow black priesthood ordination and do we allow amalgamation, which is the pre-Civil War term for race mixing, borrowed from metallurgy, meaning the mixing of metals and applied to the mixing of races. So that's the word he actually uses in his letter to Brigham Young. Do we allow black priesthood ordination and do we allow amalgamation? And then in his journal, he writes, I've never been so disgusted in all my life. Oh woman, where is your shame? Speaking to Mary Matilda Webster, a white woman, where's your shame for marrying a black man? And I've never been so disgusted uh, that these two people are members of my faith and they have a child together. So he is disgusted over the race mixing that he finds in the Low Massachusetts branch. And um, he actually gets to give Brigham Young a firsthand report uh, of his travels. He meets with Brigham Young on December 3rd, 1847 at Winter Quarters. So remember Brigham Young goes to the Sully Valley and then returns to Winter Quarters and he'll get uh, William Appleby's report firsthand. And that meeting uh, lasts for over four hours. And unfortunately, we only have 13 handwritten lines that survive as a minute of that meeting. And so if they discuss priesthood in that meeting, it doesn't survive in the minutes. But what does survive is a really profound concern over race mixing. And Brigham Young will then express um, disgust over race mixing and actually uh, suggest that capital punishment should be the penalty for race mixing. So we see him moving in a dramatically different direction uh, between March of 1847 when he's expressing an open racial vision 
and December of 1847 when he starts to suggest that uh, the penalty for race mixing should be death. Yeah, I, um, I think that's it. Thanks. You can keep going. Well, I, I was going to say, I mean, um, you know, so then we really uh, we really have uh, 1852 um, when he openly articulates a racial priesthood restriction. Um, the evidence is that it seems to be in um, in operation before that, but it's the first time that historians can document an open articulation of a racial restriction by a prophet president. Um, and it comes out of the context of the 1852 territorial legislative session. And they're debating um, what laws should govern the relationship between white enslavers and their black enslaved who have arrived in uh, Utah territory. Uh, it's important to know that um, there are three black enslaved men who arrive in the Salt Lake Valley on July 22nd, 1847, two days ahead of Brigham Young. They are a part of the advance company, uh, 42 men and 23 wagons who camp in the Salt Lake Valley on July 22nd. Um, and then um, by July 24th, when Brigham Young arrives, you know, they're plowing and planting. Uh, um, they're already preparing uh, crops. Uh, so that there is food to eat for the um, rest of those who are going to be migrating that year. Uh, and among those are three black enslaved men, Greenflake, um, Oscar Crosby as is, is, is uh, his enslaved name. Uh, when he gets emancipated, he goes by Oscar Smith and then Hark Lay was his enslaved. Uh, Lay is the name of his enslaver, and then um, he goes by Oscar Wells, or excuse me, Hark Wells, um, after he's freed. Uh, so they are already in the valley, um, and more slaves will arrive. And it's important to also note that um, uh, some of them are also baptized Latter-day Saints. So you have white Latter-day Saint enslavers enslaving their fellow Black Latter-day Saints. And the legislative session in 1852, one of the bills that they debate is um, what laws will govern that relationship between the white enslavers and the black enslaved. And that produces a pretty heated exchange between Brigham Young and Orson Pratt. Brigham Young is, you have to remember that there are these really dramatic overlapping roles. Brigham Young is is prophet of his, his church, as well as governor of Utah Territory. Orson Pratt is an apostle in his church and a legislator in the territorial legislative session. And they strongly disagree about racial matters and whether Utah should legalize the enslavement of uh, these people who are already uh, in, in the valley. And Orson Pratt argues that, that the bill should be rejected in its entirety. He calls slavery a great evil. Uh, he, he says, you know, if we introduce slavery into an area where it doesn't exist, we're worse than the Southern slaveholders who basically inherit their slaves uh, because we're actually bringing it into a region where there are no laws and, and uh, you know, slavery doesn't pre pre-exist. And so, the consequences are on our head. 
He also says, if we do this, um, it will influence our missionary efforts overseas because, for example, uh, you know, the British Empire has already um, outlawed slavery. And so he says, you know, look, um, other nations will look in on us and say, you know, why would we join a faith that, uh, you know, has legalized slavery? Uh, those are all a part of his arguments. He also argues that um, curses are not multi-generational. God may, you know, in a biblical kind of Old Testament way, curse of people, um, but that doesn't pass down from one generation to the next. And he's basically um, arguing against Brigham Young's um, articulation of the racial restriction. Brigham Young gives only one reason for the restriction. He says, um, Cain killed Abel in, in the book of Genesis. And um, as a result, uh, he disrupted sort of this, um, you know, uh, ordered priesthood line. Um, and so all of, uh, all of Abel's descendants, who Brigham Young understood to be white people, would need to uh, receive the priesthood before all of Cain's descendants, um, who Brigham Young believed were black people. It's important to know black people are not descendants of Cain. I mean, I hope it goes without saying, but um, I know that that was taught uh, amongst Latter-day Saints. And we should just be clearly on the record that black people are not descendants of Cain. That was an idea that created the Latter-day Saints uh, movement by, you know, a couple of hundred years. It's a part of the broader Judeo-Christian tradition, um, how people interpreted, uh, you know, the book of Genesis. So those ideas are all percolating in this territorial legislative session. And you have Brigham Young, who, who strikes a very strident stance, um, gives a speech um, on February 5th that is really kind of his most fully formed articulation of a racial restriction. And a significant portion of that speech is an expression of concern over race mixing, <clears throat> um, but also a rejection of Orson Pratt's idea that black men uh, should be allowed to vote in Utah territory. Um, Brigham Young says, basically, um, <clears throat> they won't rule over me in this church. They can't rule over me in, in this church, meaning they can't have the priesthood. And they won't rule over me in this territory, meaning they won't be allowed the right to vote. Um, and, you know, the speech is just probably one of the most uh, difficult speeches in, in all of Latter-day Saint history, in my estimation. Um, it's drenched with, with racism. Uh, Brigham Young says we just as well give mules the right to vote as Negroes and Indians in Utah Territory. Um, so it gives you sort of a, a flavor of, of, you know, the kind of rhetoric he's using um, in 1852. So, uh, you know, a pretty dramatic shift from where he was in March of 47. And I, once again, I, I, I think race mixing is, is um, at, at the heart of his concern. In the February 5th speech, there's a long section about race mixing where he um, proposes a hypothetical scenario. What if I say to all the elders and leaders in, in Israel, go out and intermingle with the seed of Cain? Um, the moment we do that, um, it means the destruction of the church no one will be able to hold the priesthood. You know, that's sort of his um, way of, of, of suggesting uh, dire consequences of race mixing. Thanks for sharing that. And I think it is really significant that Orson Pratt did speak up. Um, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, but I, for me in particular, coming to kind of the conclusion that 
I don't believe the band was inspired. I think the fact that Orson disagreed with them is very significant in that. And I think with like with DNC 107, it talks about when revelations given that the the brethren are unanimous in in that. And it seems pretty clear right there that you have two of these leading leaders of the church and they're not in agreement right there. No, they're not. Um, uh, clearly not. And, um, you know, uh, I mean, uh, Orson Pratt will give another speech um, in 1856. Um, this is at a constitutional convention um, where Utah is attempting to apply for statehood and they have to figure out if they're going to apply as a slave state or as a free state. And the outcome of that is, is um, they overwhelmingly vote to apply, um, well, to reject sort of an application as a slave state. Um, but um, it produces another sort of debate. Brigham Young's not involved this time, but Orson Pratt is, is once again soundly rejecting um, enslavement. But um, this time he'll also say there is no proof that uh, we have no proof, he says, that um, people of African descent are descendants of Cain. And that really, uh, once again, strikes at the heart of Brigham Young's rationale for the racial restriction. Uh, and Orson Pratt rejects it. Um, so you're absolutely right, they're not in agreement. Um, and Orson Pratt will never buy Brigham Young's explanation. Now, ironically, um, in 1853, uh, as the editor of The Seer, which is a New York City newspaper he edits for a while, um, he does uh, articulate the notion that Black people were, uh, you know, um, somehow less valiant or, or evil in the pre-existence, and therefore uh, that's his explanation for the racial restriction. And so the debate between Brigham Young and, and, um, and Orson Pratt, I think, illustrates the fact that uh, there, is no, there is no agreement, and Brigham Young's articulation of a racial restriction is a violation of the second article of faith. Uh, Joseph Smith says, we're held accountable for our own sins, not for Adam's transgression. And yet Brigham Young's explanation holds the supposed descendants of Cain, Black people, accountable for a murder in which they took no part. Uh, it violates the second article of faith. And what you see then as competing explanations for the racial restriction uh, is then, well, agency, because it's fundamental to the Latter-day Saint gospel plan must be at play. And so black people must have exercised their agency poorly in the pre-mortal life. Uh, and therefore they're cursed from the priesthood. Those become the two competing explanations for a racial restriction um, that you know, uh, compete across the course of, of the 19th century and, and into the 20th century, in fact. Um, Brigham Young's violates uh, the notion of agency, and therefore, uh, because it creates this theological pressure point, other Latter-day Saint leaders suggest uh, the explanation must be located in the pre-mortal existence, and Black people must have been neutral, less valiant, or fence-sitters in the pre-mortal existence. They must have done something, they must have exercised their agency poorly in the pre-mortal realm, and therefore, that is the explanation for the racial restriction. Both of those explanations have been disavowed 
in 2013 in the race in the priesthood essay uh, by this generation of Latter-day Saint leaders. One of the things I wanted to, I guess, discuss next, so we kind of, we have those, the priesthood ban has been implemented and those beliefs of whether it's being unvalued in the pre-existence or the curse of Cain, those are common beliefs and such. Um, and it seemed like in the 1900s that many Latter-day Saints began to think that the, the ban originated with Joseph Smith. How did that thinking start with that? Yeah, so, um, you know, when I say sort of this second phase, the, the, the racial priesthood and temple restrictions develop in fits and starts across the course of the 19th century. So you have Brigham Young, who's the first prophet president who articulates uh, this, this notion. Uh, and then it just um, takes on a life of its own. It takes on a growing, uh, accumulating precedent across the course of the 19th century. So another really important moment, I think, is, is 1879, when Elijah Abel, uh, the black priesthood holder that we mentioned in that open phase, uh, he has uh, migrated to Utah Territory with his family in 1853. Uh, his wife is also a Black Latter-day Saint. Uh, he's raising his family in the faith. Uh, he had received his Washington anointing rituals in Kirtland, Ohio. He was amongst the first to participate in baptisms for the dead in Nauvoo. Uh, by the time the endowment uh, and sealing were introduced in Nauvoo, uh, Elijah Abel had moved to Cincinnati. Um, and then he will immigrate to Utah in 1853. Uh, there's a belated remembrance that suggests that he applied to Brigham Young for his priesthood, or excuse me, for his endowment and to be sealed to his wife. If that's true, it doesn't exist in the written record. It may have happened, um, you know, uh, as as in-person kind of interview with Brigham Young. What does survive in the inter, uh, written record is his appeal to John Taylor, Brigham Young's successor, in 1879. His wife, Marianne, passed away in 1877, and he wants to have his love for her sealed for eternity. Uh, and uh, he asked for his endowment and to be sealed to his wife, and that prompts John Taylor, who's a leader of the faith, to open an investigation. So I think it's important to note as late as 1879, if the racial restrictions were unambiguously in place, why would the leader of the faith have to conduct an investigation? But in fact, that's what John Taylor does. So even as late as 1879, the leader of the faith doesn't know what to do about this black priesthood holder who is now applying for the rest of his temple rituals. Uh, and that leads to an investigation. Joseph F. Smith, uh, who is an apostle at the time, is sent to interview Elijah Abel. Uh, the minutes of that interview, uh, the church history department has uh, recently uncovered and released. Um, and it seems to be the notes that Joseph F. Smith took uh, in the interview with Elijah Abel uh, that he, he brought back with him likely to uh, John Taylor. And he basically says, look, Elijah Abel gave me his priesthood ordination dates, uh, told me that Joseph Smith sanctioned his, his priesthood ordination, promised him that he, if he was valiant to the priesthood, you know, um, he would have all the blessings of anyone else. Um, he, he gives uh, the names of the people who gave him his Washington anointing rituals in the, in the Kirtland Temple, um, and in every sort of way substantiates his status as a black priesthood holder. Um, 
the, the determination of that interview is that um, John Taylor says, well, um, uh, Elijah Abel's priesthood, according to Brigham Young, you know, he shouldn't have it. So it must have been a mistake. It's a mistake um, that Brigham Young must have corrected. So either way you look at this, someone is suggesting that a prophet made a mistake, right? Um, so uh, Elijah Abel, if, if his ordination is valid, then the person who made this mistake, mistake is Joseph Smith because he authorized his priesthood. Or if it's not valid, um, if it's not valid, then Joseph Smith made the mistake because he authorized his priesthood. If it is valid, Brigham Young made the mistake because he said black people can't hold the priesthood. Um, John Taylor's uh, determination is, well, um, you know, we will allow his priesthood to stand, but we won't allow him into the temple. And uh, so you start to have then um, in the minutes of these meetings from 1879, um, 1884, up through the turn of the 20th century, where you have the next of leaders who are trying to remember back. And some of them will say, well, I think I heard, I remember Joseph Smith saying this. And that happens in the investigation of Elijah Abel's priesthood. Some of the people they interview say, well, so Zebedee Coltrane is one of the people they interview. And he says, Joseph Smith said they couldn't hold the priesthood in 1834. We know that's inaccurate because Zebedee Coltrane is the very person, according to third quorum of the 70 records, which are in the church history department, He's the very person who ordains Elijah Abel, a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy, in December of 1836. And yet he's suggesting in this 1879 investigation that, well, Joseph Smith said um, Black people can't hold the priesthood in 1834. Well, then why did you ordain uh, Elijah Abel, uh, um, a member of the Third Quorum of the Seventy, in 1836? So faulty memory starts to replace verifiable evidence. And people start to remember back falsely. Well, I remember Brigham Young saying this, or no, I think Joseph Smith said this, right? Um, and uh, you start to then erase um, from collective Latter-day Saint memory the black priesthood holders uh, who complicate sort of this uh, racial story. Um, so, and I, I think the the final kind of um, brick in is is solidified in place under Joseph F. Smith because we actually see the deterioration of his memory uh, over time uh, regarding Elijah Abel's priesthood. So remember, Joseph S. Smith is the person who interviews Elijah Abel in 1879 and defends his priesthood as valid. In, uh, in 18, what is it, 1895, uh, there's another meeting uh, where the leadership uh, are being asked questions about priesthood ordination. And uh, Joseph S. Smith reminds them that Elijah Abel had been ordained to the priesthood um, and it had been approved by Joseph Smith. But then the slippage begins. In 1904, he says it was a mistake that was never corrected. And then in 1908, uh, in response to a letter from the mission president in South Africa, who says to the leadership, hey, we baptized a Zulu chief and he wants to take the gospel to the rest of his group. What do we do about this? Uh, you know, Joseph S. Smith is then president of the church. And in the minutes of this 1908 meeting, he says, uh, 
uh, he says Elijah Abel's priesthood had been declared null and void by Joseph Smith himself. And so at that moment, he's putting um, the racial restriction in place from the beginning, suggesting that it's always been in place, that priesthood and temples had always been white, uh, and erasing uh, the black priesthood holders who complicate that uh, white story. And the leadership also determined in that 1908 meeting that uh, uh, Latter-day Saints should not actively seek people of black African descent for conversion. If they apply, that's one thing, but we should not send missionaries amongst them. So compare that to Joseph Smith's five revelations that say unto every creature. By the beginning of the 20th century, we no longer are actively seeking out black Latter-day Saint converts. We're not taking the gospel into every creature. Uh, so it's a violation of our own scriptural mandate, in other words, that is put in place uh, in 1908. And uh, Joseph S. Smith actually sends it out to, to missions. Um, it's, it's published in the Liahona, which was the um, missionary magazine for the Southern States Mission in 1908. I found it there. Uh, the instructions are don't seek out uh, converts of Black African descent. Uh, so I think, uh, in my estimation, this is the way that uh, the faith claims whiteness for itself. And, you know, we haven't really talked about that other piece of the puzzle, uh, the way that outsiders are um, describing Latter-day Saints as racially different or racially other. Um, and the most significant way you claim whiteness for yourself in this 19th century context is in distance from blackness. And I think that's what's taking place across the course of the 19th century. And uh, then, because the leadership makes uh, deliberate decisions in 1908, uh, it's no wonder that the church becomes known as a white faith. Uh, but actually, that's what they were really, I think, desiring, because whiteness equals acceptability, it equals access to political, social, and economic power. All of those kind of things are bound up in um, uh, claiming whiteness for yourself. And I think that's what's happening uh, under Joseph F. Smith at the beginning of the 20th century. So let's look over the, the switch from there. So we have this point where, okay, we're not white enough, so we're trying to prove our whiteness. What are some maybe significant events leading up to the eventual revelation that President Kimball receives? And then maybe there's a few brief events after that. Yeah, um, you know, the 20th century, I think, um, uh, I'm just going to put a, a, a plug in for Matt Harris. He's got a book um, that's in the works that will look at the racial history of the faith, um, basically from the end of World War II up through the present. It's, it's really a more in-depth study of the 20th century. In my book, I just do broad brush strokes at, at, at the 20th century. Um, but uh, really then in, in the 20th century, you have the entrenchment of this idea that the restrictions have been in place from the beginning. So Joseph S. Smith's uh, false memory becomes the new memory for the 20th century. Uh, the restrictions have always been in place. Uh, God put them in place. Uh, human beings can't do anything about it. It's going to take a revelation to get rid of. And in fact, you know, that's what happens um, 70 years later. It does take a revelation to get rid of. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Latter-day Saint leadership sort of entrenched behind that idea. Um, you know, when when uh, opposition is leveled at the church because of its racial policies, uh, they dig in their heels. 
you know, say that this is traceable uh, all the way back through the eternities to, to God. We can't do anything about it. Um, and uh, it really then uh, will will take, you know, some investigations. Um, you have a member of the first presidency, Hubie Brown, in the 1960s, who concludes that there was no revelation that began it. It's a policy. Let's get rid of it by policy vote. And really um, spends the 1960s trying to do that. Um, but as you mentioned earlier, Ryan, uh, there is no consensus amongst the leaders. So you have some uh, in the leadership who are uh, really entrenched behind the notion that this needs to be defended. Um, you have, for example, uh, Harold B. Lee, who is an apostle and then will become a prophet, uh, who says uh, the racial restrictions won't be lifted in my lifetime. And he proves to be correct on that, uh, on that count. Um, but, you know, that's just how, uh, you know, convinced he is. Um, and you have a variety of factors that, st that start to sort of uh, complicate things. Um, so you have people like Spencer W. Kimball, who is an apostle as early as 1963, as an apostle, he calls the racial restrictions a possible error. So he's got a more open vision than someone like Harold B. Lee. Um, and so there is no consensus on this. Um, Hubie Brown wants to get rid of it by policy vote. He attempts to do so, but is blocked because he doesn't have consensus. Um, you have all of those kind of forces percolating, but you also have people who are being converted in Africa, for example. They're coming across Latter-day Saint literature. They've formed entire congregations calling themselves Latter-day Saints or Mormons uh, in Africa. They're sending requests into Salt Lake City asking for people to be sent to baptize them. Uh, the leadership is desirous to do so, but they don't know how to get around this. Um, how do you then baptize people who can't be self-sustaining because we can't ordain them to the priesthood, right? It highlights once again how the racial restrictions violate the scriptural mandate that this gospel must be preached unto every creature, right? So you created your own conundrum. Um, the church also has announced a, a temple in, in Brazil, and Latter-day Saint leaders are flying to Brazil, and they are meeting faithful Black Latter-day Saints in Brazil who are giving of their hard-earned money to build an edifice that they know they won't be allowed to attend once it's built. And that's tugging at the heartstrings of Latter-day Saint leaders. Um, and for some of them, the question starts to become, you know, in a mixed racial population such as Brazil, how will we keep people out? It really starts to become, how will we ensure that they are in? Um, and what can we do, you know, to uh, bring this about? And I think, uh, you know, that's really what is on uh, Spencer W. Kimball's mind. Um, so you have all of those kind of forces kind of percolating. Um, and I think um, Spencer W. Kimball, uh, you know, begins his administration by going um, uh, amongst the leadership and, um, you know, trying to bring them along uh, so that he can get to consensus um, and, you know, open up the, 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 the priesthood for, for all people to return the church to its universal roots. Um, so I think those are just some of the factors that are percolating. I, I think the lack of consensus is really 
the reason why it stretches on for as long as it does. Yeah, I think some significant things with with President Kimball that I've read about is so or one of my prior interviews I had Marcus Martins on and he discussed like every for the the prior years to the priest event every year President Kimball would come visit his father and they developed this really close relationship or I remember reading an article from President Kimball's son about how like there was a a priest of blessing that was given to um, a black man or a patriarchal blessing given to a, a black man in California, I believe. And the blessing said that he would receive the priesthood and the patriarch was kind of freaking out. He's like, did I make a mistake? Sends it to president Kimball. And he just says, nice blessing, just signs off on it. So I think there were like a number of events like this that I think are really significant. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, um, there's another example. Uh, there's an article that's published in the journal of Mormon history that gives three or four different examples in the 20th century in international locations. One example is in Brazil where a branch president, um, you know, uh, investigates his own ancestry and finds that he's got African ancestry. Um, and, you know, he's serving as a branch president. They release him as branch president, but they don't, they don't take away his priesthood. They just ask him not to exercise it uh, publicly. Um, and then after the 1978 revelation, uh, they don't reordain him. They just say, you know, you, you already hold the priesthood. And it highlights um, the impossibility of policing racial boundaries. That's one of the lessons we're learning from uh, the project that I oversee at the University of Utah called Century of Black Mormons, uh, where we're attempting to name and identify every person baptized into the faith between 1830 and 1930 of Black African descent. And some of uh, the biographies, um, you know, include examples of uh, people who uh, pass as white, um, who have uh, African ancestry. So um, I just completed the research on one. I'll just give you a quick example. Um, and, and these are all publicly available. If you go to centuryofblackmormons.org, um, there are over, uh, you know, 118 biographies completed already. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we're learning is, is just this impossibility of policing racial, racial boundaries. Um, we, in the 19th century, they understood, um, they understood it, they understood race by talking about racial blood, right? Um, Negro blood. Uh, we now have DNA. And through DNA, um, we have really come to understand, right, that we all, all really are a part of one big uh, human family, uh, that, that we, um, you know, our DNA is more alike than it is different, and that uh, there's been all kinds of uh, intermixing amongst uh, the broader human family. Nelson Holder Ritchie is a great example. Um, his, uh, his father uh, is, is likely a, a white um, enslaver uh, who more than likely rapes uh, an enslaved woman. And she is then sold into Missouri and he's born in Missouri um, enslaved. And uh, he will eventually escape from slavery, um, show up at the home of a member of the Underground Railroad in uh, Kansas uh, by the last name of Ritchie, and he takes that as his last name. Uh, he fights in the Civil War on the side of freedom, 
Uh, he establishes a hotel in Great Bend, Kansas, in a livery stable, and marries a white woman. And Latter-day Saint missionaries um, start to take up room and board in his hotel. Uh, they convert uh, the family. They move to Utah. Uh, Nelson's wife is white, um, and they apply for temple admission in 1909. And uh, he's a mixed racial ancestry, right? Um, and also married to a white woman. Uh, and the bishop says, no, you can't receive the priesthood and go to the temple because you have Negro blood in your veins. Uh, and, and yet, Richie says, well, two of my daughters have already gone to the temple and been married in the temple. And the bishop says, well, that doesn't matter to me. Um, so they were light enough that they passed as white, right? And they had moved out of that congregation, um, married, uh, you know, white, white men and been sealed in the Salt Lake Temple. Um, the story that I think is really interesting is uh, they have 12 children. Um, the, the 11th child is a boy, and he's, he's 11 years old when his parents are rejected from temple admission. And then he turns 12 the following year, 1910, and he's not ordained to the priesthood. Um, the assumption is that probably the same bishop prevents him from being ordained. Um, he, he marries, uh, moves to California, becomes a pharmacist, um, and uh, seems to be outside of the faith for most of the 50s and 60s. In 1970, he returns to the faith um, in this ward in California. And in 1970, uh, we find him being ordained a, a deacon, uh, and then a teacher, and then a priest, and then an elder, all within eight months. Um, and then going to the temple, um, and every member, all, all 12 members of, of the Ritchie family, um, either in life or by proxy after death, received temple rituals and priesthood ordination before June of 1978. They all pass as white. Their father was born into slavery. Nelson Holder, uh, Nelson Holder Ritchie's son, Russell, dies as a high priest in Tempe, Arizona in 1985, the son of an enslaved man in 1985. Um, so I'm just simply sharing their family story as one example of it's just impossible to police racial boundaries. Uh, all of the children uh, eventually received temple rituals and priesthood ordination before June 1978. They all pass as white. Their dad passes away in 1913. So he's the only reminder that the family has African ancestry. The wife is white, and she simply, after he passes away, goes to the temple and has him sealed to her, and then all of the children as well. Um, so it's really impossible to police racial boundaries. And what was the purpose for it anyway? One of his, one of Nelson Holder Ritchie's grandson uh, serves as quarterback for Brigham Young University in the 1940s as a priesthood holder, right? Um, does that mean that uh, you know their priesthood is somehow invalid? Right, um, we, we have to sort of uh, you know grapple with that, and it raises the question: Well, what purpose did the restrictions serve in the first place? Because the walls of exclusion um, sometimes were much more permeable than uh, we like to think. If you, especially if we apply DNA uh, evidence, uh, you know, to our understanding, uh, the Ritchie family actually contacted me. They heard about the database at the University of Utah 
and they said, look, 72 members of our family have um, done DNA studies and we all have African ancestry. These are white, mostly white, uh, I mean, these are all white uh, and mostly Latter-day Saints in the 21st century who have done DNA studies and found African ancestry and, you know, traced it back to Nelson Holder Ritchie and said, we think uh, he belongs in your, in your database. And, you know, our team did its research and, and he's included as well as all of his children because it illustrates this principle that we're talking about, you know, um, the difficulty of policing, excuse me, of policing racial boundaries and, and uh, the way that people pass as white. Um, Elijah Abel is another example. We have three generations in his family. Um, his son Moroni is ordained in 1877 on his deathbed. Deathbed ordinations were not uncommon in the 19th century. And then his grandson, Elijah Abel III, is ordained in 1935 in Logan. Uh, but Elijah Abel III is passed as white by then. Um, and he dies uh, in the 1960s in Anaconda, Montana, and his uh, funeral is held in the Latter-day Saint Chapel in Anaconda. He dies a practicing Latter-day Saint uh, and a, a priesthood holder, right, an elder. Um, so I'm just simply saying that, um, you know, it's, it's really impossible to police these racial boundaries. And, and I think um, these stories illustrate that and illustrate, um, you know, just raise the question, you know, what, what purpose does, did the racial restrictions serve in the first place? Yeah. And, and especially in Brazil, like you, like you mentioned, right. Um, Brazil is just uh, prides itself on its, its mixed racial heritage, right. Good luck trying to ferret out one drop of anyone's racial ancestry in Brazil. Yeah. Um, so the next question I wanted to ask you is, so why is it important that we as Latter-day Saints understand our history relating to race? Well, I think um, it's important because uh, of the racial history that we're living through in the 21st century. Uh, if we understand um, race as somehow um, a black problem or a Native American problem, or an Asian problem, or an Asian American problem, or a Pacific Islander problem. Um, if that's how we understand race, and we don't understand the power of whiteness in America's racial story, uh, how is it that we as Latter-day Saints can fulfill our baptismal covenants? Uh, if we um, see incidents of racial violence and uh, somehow uh, say, well, that as a white person, has nothing to do with me, uh, that um, somehow that's someone else's issue, someone else's problem. Uh, I think it's important to understand our own racial history uh, so that we can stand in places of empathy in the 21st century, so that we can learn from our racial past. Um, in my estimation, Latter-day Saints should be leading out on issues of racial justice uh, but it feels like more often than not, we're crippled by our own racial history. And um, because of that, we don't quite know what to do. In my estimation, it's much more healthy uh, for us to own our racial past, um, 
we experienced a form of racialization at the hands of outsiders who suggested that we somehow were not white enough in the 19th century. We also participated in racism on the inside and hopefully have come to understand its consequences. So what better people in the 21st century uh, to stand in places of empathy? Um, if we uh, take a humble approach to this and use it as a means of uh, reaching out with love and compassion uh, to all of God's children and understand that we are, that, that God is the author of diversity, that we're all a part of his broader human family, that the gospel is meant for every creature. Uh, and instead of being silent or ignoring incidents of racial violence, uh, those are members of our human family. Those are members of God's human family. Those are all God's children, right? Um, we should then be willing to uh, actively engage when we see incidents of, of racism um, and, you know, pray about it in church, speak about it, um, talk out of, um, you know, concern and love for our fellow Latter-day Saints. Um, I think it makes us better people uh, to be racially aware. I think the, I mean, I'm a historian, so the past in my estimation matters. Uh, we need to be informed. We shouldn't attempt to deny or justify our racial past. We should own up to it. Um, there's nothing wrong in my estimation to say, hey, we got this wrong. Uh, these are the things we've learned from it. And this is why we are in a prime position to stand in places of empathy in the 21st century. I love that. Great thoughts. I, I really appreciate that. And also, we've already kind of mentioned this during the episode, but I just want to really emphasize just that, yeah, we do need to learn from these things. And there have been some past theories, such as the idea that Black people are descendants of Cain, or that they were unvalued in the preexistence. And I think we as Latter-day Saints, if we ever hear those ideas among our fellow Latter-day Saints, we should be very clear with those people that those ideas have been disavowed. Cause I don't think we last thing we want is for those things to be stumbling blocks and other people coming closer to Christ. And I think it's up to us to help educate each other with those issues. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I really agree. And I think we should not also participate in new justifications. Um, you know, I, I sometimes hear then new justifications that, that crop up rather than actually sitting with, the actual weight of the history, understanding it, coming to terms with it. Um, I still hope hear, hear people inventing new justifications to try to uh, dismiss it, right? Um, such things as, uh, well, it's a parallel to Jews first and then Gentiles. Um, so white people first, then black people. Or God always discriminated uh, in distributing priesthood authority. Um, he only gave it to the Levites in the Old Testament. But that's not a parallel to what happened in uh, the, the racial restrictions in the church. Those are, uh, once again, new justifications, trying to lay it at God's feet rather than actually coming to terms with the actual history uh, that we're talking about. Levites in the Old Testament were assigned to uh, perform the rituals and welcome the rest of the tribe of Israel into the tabernacle. 
the racial restrictions excluded people of Black African descent from temple admission. Uh, it's just not a parallel. Uh, and I hear those kind of new justifications um, in the 21st century. Or, uh, you know, sometimes I hear people say, uh, well, it would have destroyed the church had we been racially inclusive. Uh, we love to uh, quote Brigham Young's standard of truth where he says, no unhallowed hand will stop this work, right? And yet being uh, treating black people equally would have. Um, we were willing to withstand the scorn of the nation uh, to implement polygamy. Um, you know, so uh, those are just new inventions of justifications in my estimation that uh, I, I think we need to think through before we just really glibly accept them and pass them on and understand the kind of harm that they can produce. What kind of advice would you have for those that are struggling with this issue? Uh, you know, I guess for me, um, what it boils down to, at least, you know, when, when I talk to people about this and, and, you know, have conversations and question and answers, a lot of times it really revolves around questions of prophetic authority. Um, and, uh, I think if we adopt a notion of infallibility, uh, you know, Latter-day Saints can really quickly paint themselves into a corner. Um, I love Doctrine and Covenant section one, uh, where I, it's, it's called the Lord's Preface uh, to the Doctrine and Covenants. Now there's a conference in, in Hiram, Ohio in 1831, and they're getting ready to publish uh, what, what was called the Book of Commandments at the time. And um, Joseph Smith claims this as a revelation, sort of as the preface to this. And um, there are a couple of verses we love to quote as Latter-day Saints, but I think we miss um, uh, really important verses where uh, Christ, I think, is saying to, to Joseph Smith, okay, you know, I've lived through all these other... Um, dispensations. And I got, you know, Moses killing an Egyptian and burying him in the sand. And then I call him as a, as a prophet. And I have Judah, you know, sleeping with his, his daughter-in-law. I have uh, David um, and Bathsheba and Uriah. I have Peter who claims to not know who I am three times. Um, and yet he's still going to be my leader. Uh, I think he's taking a deep breath and he says, um, my servant in the last days will be weak. They will be prone to error and they will sin. And the church that they are uh, willing into existence is true and living, speaking unto it collectively, not individually. Collectively, I think as Latter-day Saints, we have the potential for uh, profound good. Individually, um, I think weak, error-prone sinner does a great job of describing me. Uh, collectively, we can be true and living, right? If uh, we walk up to our covenants and um, our, follow our baptismal covenants to uh, mourn with those that mourn and, and comfort those in need of comfort. Those are, I think, um, 
ways to think through this if uh, the issue, you know, is, uh, you know, questions of, of prophetic authority. How could Brigham Young be allowed to do this? Uh, really, what that is, is a question about agency. And in my estimation, uh, God doesn't take a prophet's agency from a prophet when he makes him a prophet. If prophets have agency, prophets can make mistakes. Look in the Doctrine and Covenants. How many times does uh, uh, the Lord say to Joseph Smith, you have sinned and you need to repent? Well, uh, why can we read that and then pretend like prophets can't ever get it wrong? Um, agency is a foundation of the gospel plan, in my estimation. That's what we claim to have fought a war in heaven over. Uh, and uh, we love to explain evil by saying, well, you know, God doesn't revoke a person's agency. He allows a person, even Hitler, to kill six million Jews because agency is so important. He can't violate a person's agency, even if they use it to exercise, if, even if they exercise it in evil ways. And yet, we will then turn around and suggest God revoked, God should have revoked Brigham Young's agency in implementing, uh, you know, a racial restriction and should have come down and stopped him from saying the horribly um, racist things he said in 1852. Um, we have to be willing to allow agency to play out. And that can mean that things are messy. Uh, I know we love tidy history as Latter-day Saints. My experience as a historian uh, is that history is messy. And if someone tries to convince me that all of a sudden when I study Latter-day Saint history, it gets tidy, um, I will have serious concerns and questions. I expect it to be messy. And because that, that's a reflection of our human lives. Um, God allows us agency and allows us to exercise it in, in, in poor ways. Um, and here's the other thing, um, another piece of, of advice. Sometimes I, I um, speak to people and, and I, I know they get defensive and like to circle the wagons around Brigham Young. Um, the other beautiful piece about uh, this gospel plan is that we believe in eternal progression, right? Um, we, are the, we, are, we are the ones who don't believe in this endless um, hellfire, uh, you know, you're, you're cast to hell and you're just in the hellfire for, for eternity. We actually are the ones who believe in eternal progression. So do we really believe that Brigham Young is somewhere stuck in the eternities on his position from 1852? Or do we believe that he has progressed, that he has repented and moved on and he wants us collectively to do so as well? Uh, we don't need to defend his position from 1852. Uh, I think Brigham Young has moved on, and I think he wants us to uh, also uh, to move on and embrace a racial vision that includes all of God's children as our brothers and sisters. Um, so, you know, those are the kind of things um, that help me to kind of work through this uh, personally. I, I I don't see. Brigham Young stuck on his position from 1852. I think he has progressed and we should allow him to progress instead of circling the wagons and trying to do somehow come up with a defense of, of what he said in, in 1852 and the racial restrictions that um, sort of took on a life of its own from there.
I love that. I think, yeah, understanding that, hey, prophets can make mistakes. They have their agency. And then I love that idea that we believe in eternal progression and Brigham Young, he's probably repented by now. And another thing that I I just want to kind of bring up before I ask you our last question is I also think studying some of these latter days, some of these black latter day saints before 1978 can also be very faith promoting on my mission, I was struggling with this issue a lot and just kind of learning about the stories of people like Joseph W.B. Johnson, um, Darius Gray, um, some Black Latter-day Saints that joined the church before the ban was lifted and just the spiritual experiences that they had and how they may have not known why that ban was in play, but they they knew the gospel is true. And I think that can be very faith-promoting as well. It's just, why would these people join the church? Um, they, the, they, the band directly affected their life, but they did it for some reason. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, two people from the Century of Black Mormons Project come immediately to mind. Um, and I would encourage your listeners to, to go look, look up their biographies. Um, uh, Frida Lucretia McGee-Ballou is baptized in 1909 in a creek outside of Tylertown, Mississippi. And Novella Sergeant Gibson is baptized in a creek in 1906 in Caroline County, Virginia. Both women are in the Washington, D.C. temple within one month of the June 1978 revelation. One has waited over 72 years and the other over 69 years from their baptism to be allowed into the temple. So those two women um, inspire me. Um, and I think, you know, we should be willing to kind of think through that, right? Um, uh, Novella lived in Washington, D.C. at the time. So within two weeks, she's in the Washington, D.C. temple. Um, so here's, here's the thing um, we should consider, right? Novella and Frida were in every sort of way living their lives according to Latter-day Saint standards. Uh, they did not, in other words, need to repent to get a Temple Recommend interview. They could answer the Temple Recommend questions the same way that a white person answered the Temple Recommend questions before June of 1978, and yet they were denied admission simply because of their skin color. That's racism. What needed to change? What needed to repent? Uh, the church needed to change. Novella and Frida immediately qualified for Temple Recommend and were within were in the Washington, D.C. Temple. Uh, they remained with the faith for 72 and over 69 years. Um, and within a month of the revelation, uh, Frida traveled over a thousand miles from New Orleans to be in the Washington, D.C. Temple um, to be sealed to her husband who had predeceased her. She called him the love of her life, and she called the, her day in the Washington, D.C. temple the happiest day of her life. Um, so I think we should stop and consider, uh, you know, what their faith meant to them, that they um, stuck it out that long from their baptisms until they were admitted into the temple. Thanks for sharing that. I definitely felt the spirit really strong as he talked about them. So thank you for that. Um, the question that I want to close on that I, I ask most people that I interview is, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ mean to you? 
Yeah, I, um, it means, uh, I think, hope and redemption. And um, it means love. And I guess it's really kind of anchored in uh, Jesus Christ as, as my savior and redeemer. And uh, that he's never let me down, that he is uh, the author and the finisher of my faith, that um, he loves all of us. And I, I see the Latter-day Saint gospel messages as filled with uh, beauty and love. Um, we believe that all of us are children of God. That one doctrine in and of itself, I think, is profound. Uh, it um, anchors me, um, gives me a feeling of self-worth and identity and a desire to return to my Father in heaven. So um, I think it's a beautiful gospel plan. Uh, I think it's a good plan. And, you know, all plans in their implementation um, can sometimes get, uh, you know, can, can sometimes the implementation of the plan can sometimes be flawed. Uh, that doesn't mean the plan is bad. And for me, uh, it's a good plan. And I think the vision uh, is really ennobling. It's empowering. Uh, it's beautiful. Uh, we have we, we are children of a loving uh, heavenly parents. Um, we actually believe in a divine heavenly mother. Uh, all of those, uh, you know, for some Christian traditions are, are some of those ideas are seen as really radical. And, and that's, I think, what is uh, beautiful about uh, the Latter-day Saint gospel for me. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. And thank you so much for being on. We really, really appreciate your insights. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. This has been To Whom Shall We Go podcast. We'll see you next time.